Well, this morning we're talking about marriage. And as we get into this topic, I just want to acknowledge a couple of things. Um, there's nothing like two years of a pandemic. And a month, the most recent month, is probably the month of greatest fatigue uh, for all of you and for all of us. Maybe not. Maybe your fatigue had earlier. But I read an article recently that said that people in the world are sicker right now than they have been in the last hundred years based on hospitalizations, deaths, and all those kind of things. So as we talk about marriage today, I want to recognize that there's a lot going on in your marriages. Uh, I haven't talked to all of you recently, but I can guarantee you that the circumstances that you're walking through have not made it easier to be married to one another if you are married, but it's made it more challenging. And so I want to go ahead and acknowledge that and get it out of the way right now, that as you're sitting there listening to this message and you recognize that you have areas in your marriage where you really are aware that you need Jesus, you are not alone. You're, you are not the only married couple that's going to be sitting in here today going, man, you know what, we, we have a lot we need to grow in. Every single couple, if you're thinking rightly and you have a humble heart under God's word, needs to have that experience. There's not a single married couple in this room, there's not a single person in this room, whether you're married or not, that does not tremendously need the grace of the gospel. So don't sit around trying to size yourself up against other couples in your imaginary world that they live in. We all live in a real world where we really need Jesus, okay? Another caution for you in this message is to think of how well this sermon applies to your spouse, um, and to like have the little nudge going on, you know, and hey, you know, underline something in their Bible next to you when I say something. I would resist that temptation. Um, I would really encourage you to listen to these words coming to you and, and to ask of the Lord that you would have a humble heart that could receive this message today. You know, I want you to also remember as we talk about this how we got here in Ephesians. The first half of Ephesians is all about the grace of the gospel, the grace of God. Ephesians, excuse me, Romans 2.4 says it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. God is not up there saying, gotcha, look at that, look where you need to grow. He's not up there sending zingers at you. He's up there in kindness pointing out to you how much hope there is for you in Jesus Christ if you will continue to walk with him. Uh, often we get to this well-known section of Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. It's why I had Liz read, starting in verse 18. We often separate this out. In fact, almost every time I've heard this sermon preached, I've heard marriage separated out as its own thing apart from the rest of the book. I think that's also a huge mistake we can, we can make. Not only is grace all over the first three chapters of Ephesians, this section on marriage flows directly out of the previous verses, which have to do with being filled with the Holy Spirit. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he wrote his commentary on this, he talked about a spirit-filled marriage. In fact, as we get into the rest of the relationships that follow with marriage, with parenting, and then with workers and, and, and employer relationships, they all have to do with flowing from the Holy Spirit. What we have to do here is recognize that what is possible here is only possible through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And as the Holy Spirit works in us, I'm telling you, 
that impossible things become possible. That things that you feel like are impossible for you as a husband or a wife or a Christian actually are possible, and they're not possible because you figured it out and you read some self-help book and put together a five-point outline that you lit. No, no, no. The way this is possible is through the grace of the gospel going to work in your heart and changing you tremendously. And one of the things the Holy Spirit will do in you, if you're a husband or a wife, is the Holy Spirit will produce humility in you. Humility, true humility, is impossible without the grace of God at work in our lives. But the Holy Spirit gives us humility so that we can do what? So that we can submit our lives to Jesus Christ. You know, there's a lot of talk, we're going to get into this in just a minute, there's a lot of talk about submission and how do we understand submission in this passage. I'm telling you that submission is at the very heart of Christianity. You cannot understand Christianity without submission. At the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we have a God and Savior, and Liz, she, she wept at the right point in that passage, who loved us and gave himself up for us. We have a God who gave himself up for us, and because of that, he is Lord. That is how grace came to us. He is Lord. He is the Lord of the cross. And on the cross, he dispenses out grace to us. But at the cross, he becomes our Lord, and we submit our lives to him. There is no Christianity without submission to Jesus Christ. And what this passage also tells us is that there's no, there's no Christianity, there's no true Christianity unless we are submitting our lives to one another in the church. That as we submit our lives to Jesus Christ, we find ourselves in relationship with other believers who have also submitted their life to Jesus Christ and to one another. In the ministry of Paracaleo, it's a ministry that my wife has uh, really benefited from, and she's a trainer there now. It's a ministry to church planners' wives and pastors' wives. They talk about the importance in relationships. When you're, when you're trying to, to move through relational barriers, you have an option. You, you face a barrier. You get there, and you can, you can do one of two things. One thing you can do is you can protect yourself. You can be defensive. You can choose not to move forward, not to trust. It, or what's, what Pericaleo talks about is you can empty yourself. You can empty yourself. You can surrender. You can actually open up your life. And if, unless you empty yourself, unless you, you do that, you cannot move through that relational barrier. And that applies in all relationships, but it especially applies within the marriage relationship. I'm just going to start out with, with vulnerability, okay? For the first seven years of our marriage, we've been married 21 years now by God's grace alone. Uh, the first seven years of our marriage, I did not practice self-emptying. I mean, I knew about surrender and I knew about humility and all that, but I personally was very protective and I also had my own agenda that Olivia needed to fit in. And it wasn't until about the seven-year mark that that just wasn't working anymore. And so we started going to marriage counseling, and I started learning that I, I, I couldn't operate that way, that I, I didn't have those words at that time, but I needed to empty myself. I needed to surrender and understand that, that she, uh, she had a claim on me in a way that, that I needed to, 
to really prize her and see her in ways that I hadn't seen before. And, and that really started for us a process of our marriage growing tremendously. But it came through that emptying. I, did, I didn't really understand this at the time, but what chapter 5 verse 21 talks about with submitting yourself to one another, I needed to learn that I needed to submit my life to her. I needed to serve her as it talks about how husbands are supposed to love their wives. I needed to, to empty myself in ways I hadn't before. And I think for husbands, as we'll get there at the end, that's really a key for us. It doesn't come naturally to us to be vulnerable like that at times. We need to learn how to move through and be vulnerable. So Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, hold, there's three aspects I want to talk about today about what a spirit-filled marriage looks like. First of all, a spirit-filled marriage means mutual submission. Second, uh, a spirit-filled marriage, first of all, we're going to talk about a call to wives in a spirit-filled marriage, and then thirdly, we'll talk about a call to husbands in a spirit-filled marriage. Let me pray for us. Lord God, I do pray that you would work uh, through your word and by your spirit in our lives. I pray that you would empower me and enable me to preach uh, this message, even though my family uh, and I have uh, been recovering from COVID and now are recovered, but as you know, I'm feeling a little more tired than usual. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would use me and speak through me uh, now. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first of all, a spirit-filled marriage means mutual submission. It means mutual submission. I realize this word submit in the context of marriage is highly polarizing. Ours is an age of liberation, not least of which for women. So how should we respond to this as followers of Jesus? Well, first of all, I just want to say that submission biblically can never mean inferiority or exploitation or humiliation. These are simply not the ways of Jesus Christ. We never see this in Jesus' ministry. We acknowledge without equivocation that men and women are both and all created in God's image and therefore are equal in the sight of God in dignity, worth, value, and respect. Every human being is equal in dignity and worth and value and should be treated as such. So the fact here in Ephesians, in this cultural moment, 2,000 years ago in which it was written, I just want to say that it was incredibly progressive within the cultures of the ancient Near East. Jewish men would wake up every morning and as part of their morning prayers would thank God. This is written in their liturgy. They would thank God that they were not a woman. Seriously. Within the Greek world, women were expected to have sexual fidelity to their husbands, but husbands did not have the same legal expectation. And the Roman world was even worse. And so here comes Christianity saying that women have equal dignity and value and are worthy of respect. And hey, men, that's not going to work anymore. That's not the way this works. You're supposed to not just live with fidelity to your wives. You're supposed to give your life up for your wife like Christ loved the church. Christianity came in and through the doctrine of Imago Dei directly combated this negative view of women. John Stott says this, To whom do women and children and workers owe their liberation? Is it not to Jesus Christ, who, though he was God, treated everyone, but especially those on the margins, with love and dignity and respect? So there is no way, when we get to this section of Ephesians, 
when we get to Paul's writing about submission, that what he says here can possibly contradict the ministry of Jesus. It's just not possible. Women are equal in the sight of God and are worthy and honored in the sight of God as equal image bearers. But equality also biblically cannot mean that men and women are without distinction or are interchangeable. Let me show you why. Genesis 1.27 says this, So God created man in, his own, man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So the very same verse that gives us the doctrine of equality based on the image of God also gives us the doctrine of distinction based on the image of God. That men and women are equal, but men and women are different, but they're still the imago Dei. And these are backed up both biblically in the same verse. So God's plan is not flipping, flipping the script so that women rule over men, as in feminism. This will not lead to liberation. And God's plan is not in changing genders so that men become women or women become men. God's plan is equality with distinction, but still maintaining value and worth and honor and respect. Andreas Kostenberger, in his book, God, Marriage, and Family, said this, For the first time in its history, Western civilization is confronted with the need to define the meaning of the terms marriage and family. In all of our history, what until now has been considered a normal family made up of father and mother and often a number of children has in recent years begun to be viewed as one of several options. So what we're facing here is not just a cultural war, it's a spiritual war. Why are these foundational norms, these building blocks of society and history being challenged now? Well, why it's being challenged now is the rise of the virtue of the autonomous self. And I use that word virtue uh, intentionally. It's not just that we have an autonomous self. It's that you are virtuous to the degree that you follow your own desires, your own understanding of who you are, that you follow that to the farthest extent, that your identity is not given to you by God. Your identity is something that you create on your own. And so the degree to which you pursue your own, um, your own fulfillment and your own identity, so long as you don't hurt anyone else, you are approaching, approaching true virtue. And that is the teaching of our society today. True virtue is found in freedom to do as you please, as you find and fulfill your own identity. This has led Tim Keller to say in his book that recently came out, How to Reach the West Again. He says, Today's culture believes the thing we need salvation from is the idea that we need salvation at all. He says, today's culture believes the thing we need salvation from is the idea we need salvation at all. Now, why am I making such a big point of this? Because I recognize, and you need to recognize, how different, how vastly different the biblical teaching on marriage is than the cultural teaching. Not just on marriage, but the very basic foundational reality that what I said earlier, that Christianity, you cannot have Christianity without submitting your life to God. There's nothing more counter-cultural than that notion that we actually find our fulfillment not in creating our own identity, 
not in creating our own path to fulfillment, but in following the Lord and submitting our life to God and believing that God, as we submit our life to him, he is going to give us the freedom and the fulfillment and the joy that we're actually searching for. And I think that's one of the ways we can preach the gospel to this generation. People are looking for freedom. They're looking for fulfillment. They're looking for joy. They're looking for an identity. But I'm telling you that this current, essentially this cultural religion that we have going on here, that that's actually virtuous, that you would pursue it on your own, autonomously. The gospel is, is you know what, those people, as, as you really pursue that, it's not going to lead you to happiness. That's not going to lead you to fulfillment. It's not going to lead you to joy. It's going to lead you deeper and deeper into depression, anxiety, and enslavement. But the gospel, ironically, through the cultural lens, if we will submit our lives to Jesus Christ, he will give us all the things that we really desperately want and need. And I'm saying this because in marriage, it is a quintessential example of this. Our culture, it, looks like, it feels like an alien life form landed and wrote Ephesians 5, 33, that you would actually find joy and hope and fulfillment in submitting your life to the Lord and then to one another in the church, and then that you would submit your life, as it says in 521, to your husband or to your wife. It, it feels like, it feels like uh, cultural enslavement, but actually it is the pathway to freedom, it is the pathway to joy if we will embrace it. I know that there's been some debate in the past over whether or not husbands are also to submit their lives to their wives. Is it just wives that are supposed to submit their lives to their husbands? I'm telling you, that's, that's, that's untenable in Christianity. Let me tell you why. Because in the church, we're supposed to submit our lives to one another. I'm supposed to submit my life to Glenn and to Lois and to Joe. And if that's true in the church, then how is that not true in marriage? That we're supposed to submit our lives to one another. The reality is in 521, we are called as husbands and wives and as members of the church to submit our lives first to the Lord and then to one another. So we're going to then walk through the, the, particular, the particular teaching to wives and husbands here in a spirit-filled marriage, starting in the order that Paul gives us, starting with the wives, the call to wives in a spirit-filled marriage. First of all, the call to wives is similar to the husband's calling. What we have here are the, the words, the verbs submit and love. Now that, love for, that, that word for love in the Greek is agape. That word agape comes from Christ who sacrificed his life for us. So what you have here is, is submitting, which is uh, willingly placing yourself underneath someone else. And you have agape love, which is willingly giving your life up for someone else. What you have here, they are two different words, but they're not very different. The call to wives and husbands here are similar. John Stott again says this, The wife's submission is but another aspect of love. What does it mean to submit? It is to give oneself up for somebody. What does it mean to love? It is also to give oneself up for somebody. And so we don't need to get too hung up on the word submit, because the word is applicable both for husbands and for wives. But in particular, the second part of this point I'm making here, not only is 
are these words similar to the husband's calling, submit versus agape, love? Wives are called to submit themselves to the mysterious plan of God, and I'll explain that here. Wives are called to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Now, I want to point out that you're supposed to submit, if you're a wife, to your husband because the Lord, in his sovereignty, chose to put the, the husband as the head of the marriage. You're not called to submit if he deserves it and if he gets everything right and all that. I mean, if that were the case, then submission, this would never work. I mean, we husbands don't get a lot of things right in reality. The husband, though, did not choose to be put in this position as head of the marriage. God put him there. And as head of the marriage, he has a tremendous responsibility before God. It is a tremendous responsibility. I believe every husband will stand before the Lord and will answer for how they love their wife and how they raise their family. An awe-inspiring thought that we will be held accountable for how we, how we live as husbands with our wives and our children. And so it makes sense that, that we would need help, that we would need the help of our wives, and that the wife, by respecting the position that God has put the husband in, would then seek to support him. Why is the husband the head of the marriage and not the wife? Well, I would classify this as a mystery of God. It's a mystery. We, we don't know the answer to that question. But in God's sovereignty, he chose that to be the case. Not because of competency, not because of ability, not because of, of, of smarts or, or anything like that. God chose for it to be so. And it is a glorious mystery that we don't have all the answers to, but it is the way the Lord designed it to be. There are clearly areas of our lives where Olivia is more capable than I am. Clearly. But I am called to still be the head of the family. And as the head of the family and of the marriage, I I better, if she's more capable than me in certain areas, I had better listen to her. Or else I'm a fool. I'm I'm an idiot. If I do not listen to my wife in areas where she's more capable than I am, then I'm a fool. Of course, as the head, if you're the husband, then you're called to listen to your wife and to respect her and to honor her and to benefit from the way that God has made her. And on those days, wives, when it's really hard, and it's hard to respect your husband, I would just encourage you to remember the answer to the question of why is he the head? It is a mystery. It is a glorious mystery that God put him there. And just kind of live in that reality for just a minute. All right? You got to do that sometimes. But beyond it being a mystery, Paul roots the headship theologically of the husband both in creation and in redemption. He says in 1 Timothy 2.13 that it's rooted, first of all, in creation, that marriage is organized this way, he says, because Adam was created first and then Eve. And Eve was created to be a strong helper for Adam. That word for helper is also used, it's a word used of the Lord in the Psalms. It's a strong word, it's not a subservient word. It's a strong word for wives. But wives were created after he was created after Adam to help him. And, and listen, we need your help. Husbands need your help. If you're a wife, they, they desperately need the help that you can offer to them that is anchored in creation. But it's not just anchored in creation. It's also rooted in redemption, according to verse 23 and 24. The wives are given this high and holy calling of mirroring 
the church's response to Jesus in the way they honor and respect their husbands. What this is saying, and it's, it's awe-inspiring, is that the way that wives love their husbands, the way they respect and honor him, is supposed to be a picture of the way the church responds to Jesus. And that way it could even be evangelistic in showing the world what the church is supposed to be like. But I, wanna, I want you to notice a few things that are very key here. This is not a call for all women to submit to all men. Very important distinction. This is a call for a wife to submit to her husband. This is not about women and men. This is about wives and husbands. And this is voluntary submission. It happens in the context of a loving relationship. Husband is not to be a tyrant or abusive or a couch-sitting ogre. You know, being the head doesn't mean that you can have a friend whose dad, his memory of his dad is his dad sat on the couch and ordered his mom to bring him beer whenever he wanted it. And that was his view of his dad. That, is, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about here. All right, we, Men do not get to just be a tyrant or an ogre. No way. And in fact, if it gets to the point where w- wives cannot submit to their husbands, because to submit to their husband would mean that it's in conflict with submitting to God, then there's a problem. There's a problem, and if you get to that point where you feel like, I can't submit to my God and submit to my husband, you need to come to me or Andy and talk to us about that, and we can get involved, because that's not the way that marriage is supposed to work. The final point here, um, not only is submission a glorious mystery, I want to make sure that you understand that submission is rooted in Scripture and not in traditionalism, okay? It's rooted in Scripture and not in traditionalism. Andreas Kostenberger, again, in his book, He says, there is a difference between traditional marriage and biblical marriage. Let me get into that. In a traditional marriage, there's a certain division of labor that exists, where women are often responsible for household chores, cleaning, cooking, laundry. Men are responsible for working outside the home to make an income and provide for the family. I want to make sure I get this right, okay? So scripture does call men, it calls husbands, to provide for their wives and their families, which often takes place working outside the home. But in COVID, a lot of us are working inside the home, okay? So just think about that for just a second. And then women are often called to care for the needs that come up in the home and the family. Although according to Proverbs 31, you find a woman who is active, not only in the family, but also outside the family, making money for the family, So although there's this division of labor that that every family has to figure out, it shouldn't be based on traditionalism. In fact, if you went to an Asian country, or you went to an African country, and you went to a marriage, it was a Christian marriage in those countries, they wouldn't divide it up that way. They wouldn't divide the division of labor up that way. So we have to understand that we have traditionalism in our background that we need to deal with. There is much more freedom here in marriage than we would like to admit. What we're not free to, uh, to, to disbelieve is the basic notion is that the husband is the head of the family and the wife is called to respect her husband. That is what is biblical. As long as that is being in play, the husband is giving up his life for the wife as the head and the wife is respecting the husband. You can divide up the labor however you want to divide it up. I tell you what, God is a whole lot more concerned about that than he is about who does the cooking or the cleaning or who's making the money, okay? 
we need to make sure we're concerned about first principles first. And the first principle is that husbands give up their lives. And the second principle is that wives then follow their husbands. So much of traditionalism in the church is rooted in bad culture, not in biblical principles. You need to make sure that when you throw out things, though, that's based on traditionalism, don't throw out the scriptures. The scriptures clearly tell us that the husband is called to be the head of the family and in doing so to give up his life, and the wife is called to follow and to help her husband. So the call to wives is a countercultural challenge, but the call to husbands is perhaps even more difficult. The call to husbands in a spirit-filled marriage is the third point. The first aspect of the call to husbands is sacrificing love. Sacrificing love. This word here in verse 25 for love is agapao, which is the, the kind of love that Jesus showed us when he died for us on a cross. So the husband is called to give up his life for his wife. Now, a lot of guys might think that this is like some moment of great bravado when there's an intruder or something like that. Maybe you're, you're, out at, you're downtown in some urban area and you, you get to save your wife's life. That would be awesome if that were the case, right? But actually, the much harder way to, to give up your life for your wife is to do it all the time, to literally do it all the time. Like, for real, the call to husbands is the exact opposite of the cultural narrative that you are the virtue of the autonomous self. As a husband, as a Christian husband, you're called to give that up. You're no longer autonomous. It is not virtuous to pursue your own self-interest. What's virtuous is to give up your life for your wife. What this means, although guys still get to have fun, um, what this means is that as husbands, you get to have fun outside, you can have fun sometimes, recharge your batteries, but what this means is you have to give up activities that are detrimental to your marriage. You got to give them up. You can still play golf, but you can't play golf all the time. You can still play video games. You can't play video games all the time. You can still watch sports. You can't watch sports all the time. You can work hard. You can't work hard all the time. You can, you can hunt. You can't work. You can't hunt all the time. All right? You can go hang out with the boys. You can't hang out with the boys all the time. I mean, it's got to change. It's got to change. There are certain practices like... Uh, like viewing pornography that just need to go out all the way. Like spending time with women who aren't your wife on a regular basis, no more. There may be professional reasons you need to do that. There's certain things you need to give up completely. There's also things that you, you need to give up in terms of being excessive about it. Now, men and women still need some time. And the best way, time outside the home to recharge. And so Olivia and I have learned that we need to be able to communicate about that. We need to be able to say, look, honey, I need this from you. But in a healthy marriage, I learned this from a counselor named Jim Cofield. In a healthy marriage, each, each spouse needs to be able to say, I need this from you. But the other spouse also gets to say yes or no. That's a healthy marriage. The, the other spouse can seek to say yes as often as they can, but they can also say, you know what? I can't give you that right now, but I do hear you. That's a healthy marriage where one spouse can say, I need this, and the other spouse can say, not right now, or yes, that's, that's healthy. But, you know, marriage, one of my mentors told me, marriage is more about your sanctification than it is about your self-actualization. Marriage is more about your sanctification than it is your self-actualization. 
But in giving up your life for your wife, you actually find true life. You actually find not life from your spouse. You find life from Christ in a way that you would never have experienced it before. Brian Chappell wrote a marriage book called Each for the Other. It's a great book. It was written about 20 years ago. And he talked about the importance of not approaching marriage as a 50-50 relationship. But instead, each spouse needs to be 100% giving their life over to the other person. If you play 50-50 and you're always trying to keep score on who's done more and who's done less, it's a real bad deal. But if you play 100% and you're saying, my goal is to give you as much as I can, then you can have a marriage that will thrive. So first of all, it's sacrificing love. The second aspect of love for the husband is sanctifying love. And I kind of got into that a little bit earlier. But husbands are to love their wives and give themselves up so that wives would be sanctified. The word here, that they would be cleansed through the water and the word. And they do this to present their wives as holy and blameless. So here Paul says the goal of marriage for the husband is through their self-sacrificing leadership that on the day that their wife stands before Christ, she would be more holy and more like Christ than they would have been had they not been married to their husband. And a question for us as husbands would be, is that, is that really happening? Is, is my wife, is that even on my radar that I would be trying to help my wife grow as a Christian, to grow in their holiness before the Lord? Is your wife growing in holiness um, because of your leadership, or are they growing in holiness in spite of your lack of leadership? Are they having to deal more with you, and that's making them holy, or are they actually being led in that direction? And I want to say to husbands, like, I don't know how many times I've repented this week when, I'm, when I've been preparing this message. I mean, it's been a lot. Um, so there's a lot of grace available for you. Don't sit there and beat yourself up, all right? You, there's an opportunity but the opportunity to move forward is you have to know your wife. It's, just, it's a very basic thing. But are you still dating your wife? Are you still going? Are you still having fun? That's part of it. But on your dates, it's more than just having fun. And, and I don't mean, you don't have, it'd be great if you can get outside the house, if, if child care is an issue or money's an issue or COVID's an issue, whatever. I don't know how to make it work, but you've got to figure out a way to make it work. You've got to figure out a way. Are you still asking your wife questions? Are you aware of of who she is and how she's doing and what her hopes and her dreams are? Because you can't help lead her forward if you don't know her well. That's probably the first step to growing in sanctification. And then the third aspect is satisfying love. So not not only sanctifying and sacrificing, it's also satisfying love. And Paul gets into this when he says, In the same way husbands should love their wives as they love their own bodies. So the idea here is that the church is Christ's body, and so that when Jesus thinks about taking care of his church, taking care of us as his body, it actually makes sense to him, because if you think about Christ being the head of the church and the body of Christ being the extension of him, it makes sense that if Christ views us that way, that taking care of us is something that he really wants us to do. He wants to do for us, because he sees himself as being indistinguishable from us. And that's the teaching here is that as husbands and wives uh, come together and become one flesh, not only is the sexual, which it is, and we'll talk about that in just a second, very briefly, I know you have your kids in here, I'm going to be careful. Um, But it, it first of all just means that you're actually inseparable from one another. That there is no beginning or ending between the two of you. 
that you actually need each other and you view the other person. It, it, for, for example, in our marriage, like if Olivia needs something, that's really the same as me needing something. It really is the same. Because if she's doing well and she's healthy, I'm doing better and I'm healthy. It really, there is an inseparability that's there. But there's also an element, a sexual element to this as well. Because God ordained that, that sex would happen inside of the marriage. And as we take care of one another, as we serve one another in this way as well, as you have two people who are voluntarily giving themselves to one another in this way, you find something that's beautiful and incredibly satisfying. So sacrificial, sanctifying, and satisfying love needs to be intentionally pursued. So how does this work in real life? I heard a story recently about a famous theologian. He was at a seminary. He's, he's a big deal. I'm not going to mention his name because not everybody loves what he writes about, but I think he's a good husband. Um, and he, he was, he's a big deal, this guy. And he found out uh, because of the weather where he was serving in a seminary that it was really, his wife had fibromyalgia and it was really hurting her. She couldn't get out of bed in the winters, long, cold winters. And one time they, he was asked to speak somewhere down in Arizona and, uh, and they went down together and his wife, they were down there for a couple of weeks and his wife actually could even, not just walk, but they could actually ride bikes together. And he was like, oh my gosh, like he realized that my career and the choices that I'm making are actually hurting my wife. And so they started having these conversations. There was no seminary in Phoenix at the time of any kind of note. And so he began to have a conversation with the seminary in Phoenix and said, would you want me to come down there if I could? And I mean, if you knew who this guy was, they'd be like, yeah. And, uh, and so he went down to this unknown, totally unknown place. And his wife actually tried to talk him out of it. Tried to talk, because she realized he's like, he's a famous guy. But he, he recognized that the most important thing to him is not his career. It's not how many books he gets published. He really wanted to make sure that his wife was healthy. And that, there's so many different ways this can work out. But what we need to recognize is that there are elements of our lives that if we give them up for one another, we all together will be actually more whole and more healthy. Remember today a couple of things. One, as we talk about this, I realize that the call to marriage is so countercultural. It's a high and a holy calling. I'm here to tell you that God can do unbelievable things in your life as a husband or a wife as you start by submitting yourself to him and saying, God, I'm going to embrace your view of what marriage should be and not my view of what marriage should be. I'm going to submit myself to you and to your word, and I'm going to seek to live that way. If both husband and wife do that, submit themselves to the Lord, if they're spirit-filled and the Holy Spirit is at work in you, then God can do unbelievable things in your life and in your marriage. There's also just a basic element to this as well. You may be wondering, if you're, if you're not married, maybe you've never been married, maybe you're young, maybe you've been married before, how does this pertain to you? I just want to go back to the, to the very foundational element here. Being a Christian is really about submission. It's about submitting our life to the Lord, about trusting him that his ways are better than our ways. And as we trust him and as we follow him, whether that's in marriage or next we're going to talk about parenting, the next we're going to talk about work, as we follow him and trust him, we can really find that God will do extraordinary things in our lives and he'll transform us for his glory. Let me pray for us. Lord God, I just pray that you would work in us. God, these are, these are words that um, 
they come to us and we recognize how far we often fall short, but yet, God, we are also so grateful for marriage. I'm so grateful um, for the marriages in this church and the ways that you have worked in my life and in our lives through, through marriage. Lord, marriage is, is holy and something that you created, and I pray that we would experience the joy uh, that you have for us in our marriages in particular, I pray that we would start, even now as we take the Lord's Supper, that we would talk with the joy of being able to repent and live in your grace, Lord. And I pray for anyone here who's just aware of um, pain in their current marriage or pain from a past marriage. Lord, I pray that your grace would saturate us and we would know that there's no way that we can out the cross of Christ. There's no way that we can out the grace of God. Lord, I pray that we would experience the grace of the gospel in our lives. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.